Episode 237 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by cloud accounting software FreshBooks, offering you a free 30-day trial with no obligation, nothing to lose. Find out more at freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Averages can be very misleading. Right? If you've got 10 guys in a bar and they each earn the average American income of about 60000 a year and Bill Gates walks into the bar, the average income in the bar goes up to like a billion dollars. But those 10 guys didn't get any richer. Thanks for being here. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that is, by the way, dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm Jeff Brown, and I believe that a desire to be a lifelong learner is critical to your future. Put another way, if you want true success in business and in life, then I believe intentional and consistent reading is a must. Now, each and every week, we interview a successful and inspiring business book author, and we dig into his or her latest book and their unique insights on topics such as leadership and personal growth, of course, also jobs and career, sales and marketing, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, today, we're joined by a guest whose name is probably the most popular name among guests on the podcast, Dan or Dan. Annie is the name held by more guests than any other on Read to Lead. I don't know why that is. It just is. Uh, today's guest is Danny Eney, and he's authored a book called Leveraged Learning, How the Disruption of Education Helps Lifelong Learners, that's you, and Experts with Something to Teach, that may also be you. I'll ask Danny to share about how education as we know it is changing and what this means for you as a lifelong learner. Some of the issues keeping today's colleges and universities from innovating. You may be past college like I am, but if you're like me, you care about some folks who are either in college or headed that direction. And I think you'll find what Danny has to say about this fascinating. We'll also talk about the value going forward of semi-synchronous learning and much more. To me, one of the best parts about being a post-college lifelong learner is getting to learn about the things I actually want to learn about, unlike was the case in college sometimes. Uh, one of those things I don't necessarily care to learn a whole lot about are things like accounting and crunching numbers. That may be your thing, but it's certainly not mine. If you identify with that at all, and especially if you run a business or a side hustle, you need a cloud accounting software solution. And my recommendation is FreshBooks. It's the one I've been using since 2009, and I've never used anything else. I've never needed anything else. And one of the hardest things for me to keep up with, or used to be one of the hardest things for me to keep up with in my business, was expenses. Those could easily get away from me. But now that I have my debit card tied to my FreshBooks account, those expenses are automatically brought into FreshBooks. I don't even have to think about it. And I can tell you that makes tax time a whole lot easier. If I've piqued your curiosity and you're interested in giving FreshBooks a try, you can do that for free for 30 days and get access to 100% of FreshBooks features in the process. Just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that URL, easy to remember, freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Danny Eaney is a lifelong entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author, and he's a CEO of the online business education company, Miracy. He's also a high school dropout 
an MBA graduate from Canada's elite Queen's School of Business, and he's known for his value-driven approach to business. His nine published books include books like Engagement from Scratch, The Audience Revolution, and two editions of Teach and Grow Rich. His latest book, and the one we're diving into today, is called Leveraged Learning, How the Disruption of Education Helps Lifelong Learners and Experts with Something to Teach. Uh, This visit from Danny is long overdue, and that's my fault. Danny, welcome officially to, to Read to Lead. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, this is a book, Danny, I think uh, every educator certainly needs to read. Every online course creator, people like myself, uh, certainly need to read. Every parent with a a child in college or about to head to college (laughs) needs to read. So it's one that I think is perfectly timed. That's very flattering. Thank you. Well, I want to start by uh, talking about this idea of a college diploma and what's generally, Danny, what historically has uh, has been signified by that diploma and, and why the value of that signal is not as, as strong as it used to be in, in your estimation. Yeah, for sure. So let's. Uh, it's important to separate out um, college as vocational training from college that is not vocational training. Right. So in other words, you know, you can go to college, which is you know medical school to be a doctor, and you've always or or for a long time needed to go to college to be a doctor, and that will continue to be the case. But let's put that aside and let's focus on what what I call non-vocational adult education. So you know that's the four-year degree that qualifies you for a job that requires a four-year degree, but not any specific four-year degree. <laughs> right. So in that context, when you think about historically, who is able to get that degree, right? We're talking about someone who can afford to spend four years studying and not working. Mm. We're talking about someone who can afford the cost of college, which is not historically what it is today, but it was still non-trivial. And we're talking about someone who has the combination of test scores and academic background and connections and relationships to get into, into institutions that have been historically much more discerning than they are today. And so what I would know about someone, let's say 30 years ago, 50 years ago, who is a college graduate is I know this person has a certain level of commitment and dedication and work ethic. I know they come from a relatively well-to-do family. I know that they run in the right circle, so to speak. I know they have the academic wherewithal to get into college, which is not an enormous bar, but it's it's still a bar. So without knowing anything about what they studied and whether they learned anything useful or retained any of it, I know that they meet all that kind of minimum requirements. But that's not the case anymore for a few reasons. It's not the case because when 30 years ago, a college degree was the ticket to the good life, people caught on. And so everyone wanted <laughs> the college degree. And so everyone went after it, which means it became much more ubiquitous, which means that all the lending opportunities for people to go into enormous amounts of debt to afford it even when they can't afford it became possible. And so whereas 30 years ago or 50 years ago, I could look at a pool of job applicants, for example, and a tiny fraction of them would have a college diploma and that told me something about them. Now it's ubiquitous. Now all the applicants have a college diploma. It doesn't tell me all that much about them. And we've started to turn our attention to what are these graduates actually bringing to the table? What are they capable of doing? And separating out vocational training, right? If you want to be an accountant, yes, hopefully you've studied accounting. (laughs) But if we're talking about a non-vocational, you know, I went and studied English lit or economics or communications or, you know, ancient medieval poetry or whatever it is, and I'm not criticizing any of those fields in and of themselves, but the graduates coming out of those programs, in cases where they bring a tremendous amount of value to an organization, it's because they were going to do that anyway, right? The, the mm. degree does not help them to do that. 
And employers are seeing that. They're they're recognizing that. We're seeing this in the patterns of employment. The the leading employers, the most innovative employers, when you look at the Googles and the Apples and the KPMGs and the PricewaterhouseCoopers, they've started to drop degree requirements from their hiring because they know that it doesn't signify what they're looking for. There's a an annual survey done by an organization called Express Employment, where they ask a whole bunch of employers to rank a whole bunch of different factors and prioritize what's most important, what's least important. Mm. And out of 20 factors for the last several years running, education ranks dead last. So employers are catching on. And that has implications, of course, for graduates because people are spending four years, but really more than four years because only 16% of people who enroll in a four-year program are done in four years. So it's closer to seven years to get to a small majority. They're spending all this time and all this money. And when you look at their results after graduation, well, about 45% of them today, or or according to data that's about a year old now because it's the most recent data we've got, about 45% of them are underemployed, meaning they're working in a job. We're talking about people age 22, 29, post-college. They're working in a job that does not require a college degree. And of the balance of the roughly 50% that are working in a job that requires a college degree, three quarters of them are working in jobs that are in fields that are different from what they studied. <laughs> so you're, you're landing in a situation where people are spending all this time and all this money to ostensibly get a leg up in life, but they're not getting that leg up with any reliability. Employers are not seeing the value. And I mean, that's what bubbles are made of. That's when, you know, it's just like when you look at an overheated market and you're like, this, this doesn't add up. This is just about to pop. Mm. Uh, as you were speaking, I was reminded of my nephew who has uh, just begun his freshman year into college and as it's told to me is is struggling a little he was a fantastic he was a valedictorian of his class high school was the head of his uh, mock trial team uh, they won state championship i mean this is a kid who is as good a critical thinker as anybody as i uh, i know and we're in this situation here still in 2018 where getting an education means you get up and you leave your home and you go live somewhere else and so there's that adjustment he's making and there's a completely different uh, type of education he's getting where he's just attending lecture after lecture after lecture Talk a bit about, Danny, the, the opportunity costs. I, I'm thinking of him specifically in that he's already, before college began, working gainfully, making money, doing what he loves and what he's ultimately going to college for. I'm thinking about, you know, four years from now, all the opportunities he will have missed out on because he chose college. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it's why, you know, I often get asked you know, when I'm critical of the college system. Which, you know, I also want to say I'm not critical of it in a blanket sense. There are cases where college is a good thing. It's just not in the majority of cases as people imagine it to be. Mm. But when, when, the people, when people hear me say that, they say, well, you know, but what about, you know, what about in Canada where it doesn't cost what, you know, I'm Canadian, right? The mm. cost of college in Canada is not the insanity that it is in the U.S., <laughs> right? What about other parts of the world? And what I say is that I, I think the U.S. is very much a leading indicator because the cost is so ridiculously inflated. But the value is kind of the same, right? A Harvard education is still a great education by the standards of anywhere. And the opportunity cost to get it is the same, right? If it's four years in Canada versus four years in the U.S., it's still four years. Mm. And that opportunity cost is substantial, right? If someone's working minimum wage, right, let's let's forget about like the, the you know, they could be doing better than that. They could be doing other things. But working minimum wage, multiply that by four years, that's a substantial amount of money that is not being earned. That's an opportunity cost in a in a worst case scenario, right? Not mm. even considering tuition that they could be saving and all that kind of stuff. And mm. you've really got to think about the long term because we're talking about like long term success in life, right? So mm-hmm. imagine four years working minimum 
wage, taking that money, putting it in a savings account, right? Someone might say, but, you know, you can't just save all of it. You need it to live. But, you know, if you can get by four years in college, then, you know, this is this isn't existing anyway. You just put it in a savings account at, you know, a modest interest rate and leave it until retirement. And you've got a million bucks. Right. So we're talking about not an insignificant amount of money, not an insignificant amount of other things that you could be doing with your time. And that's why we need to really have an important and considered evaluation about whether this is what I want to do. The automatic response is, yeah, but college graduates earn so much more over a lifetime. Right. We've all heard that. Mm. And the problem is that that's true as an average, but averages can be very misleading. Mm. Right? If you've got 10 guys in a bar and they each earn the average American income of about 60000 a year, and Bill Gates walks into the bar, the average income in the bar goes up to like a billion dollars. <laughs> but those 10 guys didn't get any richer. Mm. So there's a similar effect happening with post-college earnings of graduates. As an average, it's higher. But let's take out the graduates of Ivy League and top schools. Let's take out people who went into very specific vocational tracks like engineering or medicine. And let's also recognize that because most schools tend to be in major metro areas, um, a lot of graduates end up in major metro areas, mm. and both the cost of living and the earning tends to be a little higher in major metro areas. So that's a little non-representative. And all of the postgraduate earning data is based on voluntary self-reporting. So presumably the people who are excited about how much money they're making are overrepresented. So when you figure all that in, it's like all those earning gains disappear. And so you've really got to think about it because what we think we're getting by default is not really there, but the opportunity cost is very real. Mm. Well, if education is on the verge of being disrupted, as you say, what are some of the, the possible scenarios, Danny, uh, when the air is completely let out of the balloon, so to speak? <laughs> what are we looking at? Um, sure. So I, I kind of divide education, uh, adult education, so post-secondary, right, after K-12, um, into three buckets. There's foundational adult education, which is, you know, where you get whatever foundation of abilities, skills, you just need to be successful in life. That's your your typical four-year, we train you for nothing but educate you for everything kind of degree, except that the data shows they don't educate you for everything. But there's that foundational adult education. Then there is last mile education, which is basically the bridge between whatever your foundation is and whatever career you want to get into. And that can be as elaborate as, you know, a decade of medical training, or it can be a coding boot camp, or it can be an internship or learning on the job. And then the third bucket is continuing adult education, education that happens in small bits and pieces throughout a career. And this is actually a big shift that we're seeing, whereas education used to happen very much on a just-in-case basis, right? A lot mm -hmm. of education at the start of a career, just in case you need it. That doesn't work anymore because things are changing so quickly. So we're moving towards actually more education over a lifetime, but on a just-in-time basis. So shorter courses, more focused topics throughout a career. So when we look at those three buckets, Right. We're seeing, first of all, a lot more shifting, like less time spending in that foundational bucket, more time spending in that continuing education bucket, but over a lifetime, not up front. We're seeing a lot of doubling down on that last mile training. Right. When people say, look, education's broken, it's not preparing people for the careers that they want to get into. A lot of the talk in, in the literature and in the press is, oh, we need to train people for the most in-demand jobs. Right. So that's talking about, oh, you know, we need to teach people how to be data scientists. Mm. And that's true, there is a lot of demand for that, but that's problematic, I think, in two ways. It's problematic, first of all, because you know it doesn't matter how 
hot of a job it is. Most of the economy is not data scientists. Mm. So like this is not a, a solution to a macro problem. But the second challenge is that, you know, people are basically saying, you know, look how fast the world is changing. The hottest jobs of today didn't exist 10 years ago. Mm. And so the solution to that is let's train people for the hottest jobs of today. But at this pace of change, the hottest jobs of today won't be the hottest jobs 10 years from now. Mm. And so what we need, last mile education will always be important, but I think what we're going to see in the coming years is a resurgence of the importance of foundational adult education, but very different from what it is now. It's not going to be spend four years studying whatever you kind of sort of feel like you want to study while you drink a lot of beer. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be much more focused on giving people very specific skills that they need to be successful in life. And, and the way I think about what these strengths, what these skills need to be is, you know, how do you train someone? How do you train someone for a world that you don't know what it's going to look like? How do you train someone for challenges that you can't anticipate? Mm. Well, imagine that you're about to embark on this big, important, high-profile, risky project, the most important project you've ever undertaken in your life. But I can't tell you anything specific about it. And now you've got to go build your team. <laughs> well, we can approach that. We know how to think about that, right? I, I, if I don't know what the project is, I can't say I need someone who knows how to build websites or a project manager or mm. a copywriter or an engineer. I can't say those things. So I'm going to choose the people that I know who are resourceful, who are quick on their feet, who are versatile, who are um, who take initiative, who are insightful, who play well with others, who are reliable. And that is the list of things that a foundational adult education has to train people for. And coincidentally, when you look at that express employment survey ranking, what are the things employers actually are looking for? It's all those things. Uh, springboarding off of what you, you said a moment ago, um, you know, we, we've discussed in the past on the show uh, things like the impact of technology, Danny, and AI on the future of jobs uh, in a world where we don't necessarily know what jobs are going to look like in the future and how they're ultimately going to be impacted by those things. Uh, is it possible to know what jobs are likely to be technology proof or is that asking too much? It's not asking too much, but I would I would reframe the question. Okay. Right? Because I, I think knowing what jobs specifically, like give me a list, I think that's very hard to do. Right. But knowing what sorts of skills I think is much more realistic. I think we can do that, right? And part mm -hmm. of it is about that same skill of resourcefulness and reliability and being able to learn quickly and learn on the job because you know, we all know people who, you know, they may have specialized expertise, but we, we know them and we know them to say that, you know, if this job disappears, these are people who are going to land on their feet. Right? We all know people like that. We mm -hmm. all, you know, if you run an organization, the organization is large enough, we've all known people who you're like, yeah, this person's a rock star in their job, but there are probably five other jobs in the organization that they could be moved into and they'd be great there too. And it's much less about like the specifics of the job because right. job skills can be picked up. So part of it is about those foundations. And then a lot more of it is about kind of the, the intersection between what makes us uniquely human and stuff that is cutting edge. So, you know, if, if you hear about um, this term stempathy, right, STEM is science, mm. technology, engineering, math, but the merger of that with empathy. Mm. You know, part of why we're very bad at making these guesses is that we're, we're not good at really understanding what is easy and what is difficult. Because the things that are easy to us are things that, you know, evolution has been working for millions of years to make us 
good at. Mm. So, you know, walking on two feet, bipedal locomotion. We're still working on making robots that can do that. It's really, really hard. And yet, like, you know, we don't think about it twice because we could do it since we were <laughs> toddlers, right? Show, show a computer a picture of a dog and a picture of a cat and ask it to tell which is which. And the computer's totally stumped. Or, or you know, the, a CAPTCHA box, like a, a word with a line through it. That's incredibly challenging for computers. It's a no-brainer for us. But then look at the things that we think of as difficult. These are essentially things that we are not wired to do, and we kind of figured out a way to do it anyway, right? So, you know, advanced, complex mathematics, right? Remembering long, hard numbers. Hmm. These are not, like, if you look at just the abstract of what is easy and what is difficult, these are not hard things. They're just not things that we were designed to do. And so there's this tendency that when we think about what's difficult, we think about the things that are very hard for us, but they're actually very easy for computers. These are often the things that are going to be replaced the first, which makes sense. Why would humans be the ones to do things that we're not all that good at to begin with? Hmm. Our strength is in leaning into the things that we are good at, our humanity, our ability to connect with others, our versatility and resourcefulness. These are the things that it's very hard to build a machine that can do. Well, I want to ask a a couple of questions related to to online education, Danny, online courses. Everything I read, including what I've read in your book, says that completion rates for online courses is pretty low. Uh, why do you believe that is? And, and, and also, secondarily, what are some of the advantages of, of online education, if any, over traditional education? Can I answer the questions in the opposite order? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Cool. So, so in terms of advantages of online education, I'll, I'll actually reframe that a little bit. Online is a medium, right? It's it's kind of a channel of getting the education from the teacher to the student in, in much the same way, but very, very differently, of course, from the way it happens in real life, in a real classroom. The key difference is not that it is online, but rather what online makes possible. Right. And that's one of the big shifts that we're seeing in, in the consumption and packaging of education, which is this shift from real-time education to education that is semi-synchronous. So real-time is, you know, the, the example of that might be a phone call, right? Or you and I talking right now as we record this, mm. right? This is happening in real-time. You can't ask a question and then I, I answer it tomorrow, right? We're here talking <laughs> right now. It's got to be in real-time. Right. Phone calls only work if both parties are available at the same time. And that's how education has been historically for, for most of history, because if the teacher and the student are in the room together, then, then you know, how are they going to communicate? And what online as a medium has made possible is a shift away from real time. And what we've actually seen, this is part of the challenge, I think, with completion rates, is this overcorrection from real time to completely asynchronous. And a podcast is a good example of that. You and I are having this conversation now, but once the interview is published, people can listen to it anytime they want. It could be today, it could be next year, it could be, you know, a thousand years from now, and there are 10 people left on the planet, <laughs> but, you know, the internet's still up, they could still find it and listen. And there's something really powerful, almost magical about that. You know, I mean, I, I wrote a book, I hit publish, it's it's there, it's out there. And I could be hit by a bus tomorrow and a thousand years from now, people could still be reading it. Mm. Although I, I so hope these are not still problems a thousand years from now. <laughs> but it's possible. And so that's really exciting. But going this completely asynchronous direction also has costs. It introduces a huge challenge of what I call volitional learning. Whereas historically, for most of the history of education, it was not optional. It was not optional in terms of do you do it or not, right? Elementary school, high school is required. It was not optional in terms of the commitment that you make then being binding, right? If I've spent, you know, I may not have to go to grad school, but after I've written a check for $100,000, it's like, I'm committed. I'm not walking away from that. And it's not optional in terms of consumption. 
system, right? I can't take my class whenever I want. It's in room 452 every Tuesday at 3 p.m. And, you know, there are drawbacks to that. It means a lot of people for whom those logistics, the cost, the time, the location don't work. It means they don't have access. But there is an advantage of I don't have to make a decision each and every time. And this is the big challenge of online and online, especially when it's overcorrected in that direction of being completely asynchronous. People can decide when they want to consume it. They can decide whether they want to consume it. It can always be tomorrow. It can always be later. And what that means is that faced right now with a choice of do I want to go through this online course or do I want to watch Game of Thrones? Mm. People are always going to choose Game of Thrones or whatever else is top of mind for them right now. And so that's a big part of why completion rates have been so low, whereas it used to be mandatory. All of a sudden, there's so much more onus on the students to lead their own learning journey, right? So it's kind of like saying, well, you know, 50 years ago, if instead of a college class, we just gave someone a stack of textbooks and said, best of luck, (laughs) how many of them would get through the textbooks? Probably about the same as go through online courses, (laughs) Right? It would be pretty much analogous. Hmm. And so it's a huge challenge, but it's also an opportunity because we can move away from that overcorrection of, of completely asynchronous and we can be semi-synchronous. The things that you can do at your convenience in a way that opens doors for a lot more people to access it can be asynchronous. And then the things that benefit from a much closer connection to what's happening in real time can be done that way as well. So for example, you can sign up for a course and you get the lesson at the beginning of the week, but you can consume it whenever you want around your schedule. But there is a session that you have with your coach at the end of each week, and that's in real time because you get a huge amount of benefit from that one-on-one conversation. And there's the pressure of a deadline, and the course ends at the end of the nine weeks or whatever it is. Uh, One of my favorite parts of the book is when you dig into some of our history in in regard to business and consolidation versus fragmentation and applying some of those principles or ideas or concepts to, to the education market. In your view, will education move toward consolidation or will it be more likely to move toward fragmentation? I love this question because this is one of those things that I had a a pretty clear idea of it as I was writing the book. But as I was writing and doing the research, I I realized just how nuanced this is. Mm. And I think it's actually going to be both. So we talked about those buckets of foundational and then last mile and then continuing adult education. Mm. So in the context of foundational adult education and in the context of some really popular last mile, like the, the, the jobs that you know, millions of people are going into, there's no reason for that same course to be taught by you know, 10,000 professors across 10,000 campuses <laughs> across the U.S. of varying levels of ability and skill. It makes a ton of sense for the stuff that has that mass appeal to become consolidated. At the same time, as our industry, as our economy becomes that much more specialized, there's also a lot of fragmentation happening in the, not the stuff you need at the beginning, but the stuff you need further on in your career. And so that continuing education is going to be much more fragmented. And that's actually a huge opportunity for experts and professionals, people with boots on the ground, because they're the only ones who are current enough to be able to deliver that. Someone who is teaching in a classroom and has been for 20 years, that just doesn't work in an era where, according to the former dean of Harvard University, everything you learn will be outdated in five or 10 years. Mm. Yeah, I I taught at the university level myself last fall and the fall before. And I realized uh, looking, I'm not doing it this semester, but I look back on that and I realized while I kind of thought of the university as ahead of most, hiring adjuncts uh, to teach some of these uh, specialized courses is really just a band-aid on on a problem they're they're trying to solve. Uh, And it's not going to solve it in the long term. Would you agree with that? Well, I I agree with that, uh, especially because it doesn't really work for the adjuncts. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
the, the challenge is that, you know, one of the big problems, one of the big unsustainabilities with college is that they're carrying an enormous cost burden. Only 21 cents on the dollar on average actually go to instruction because there's the, there's the grounds and there's the extracurriculars and there's the sports and there's, there's all this other stuff. And I'm not passing judgment on the value of all that or lack thereof. I'm just saying it's hard to it's hard to make the math work when a course essentially has to pay for five times its value indirectly. And so what ends up happening is you've got these adjunct professors who are paid way, way less than they should in terms of the value they're creating, the work they're doing, the time they're investing. And it's only a matter of time before the adjuncts kind of as a group realize they're the ones bringing most of the value to the table. And as the ability for students and teachers gets disintermediated, right? Right now, the, the college is kind of the intermediary of, I will put the students and the teacher together in a classroom, literal or otherwise. Mm. As that becomes less and less relevant and is already happening, it just becomes like, what do you need the college for? It's a lot like real estate agents. When there was no other way for buyers and sellers to connect with each other, then you needed them. But once you know, there's all these public listings and places you can go, it's like, you know, is it really worth paying? Paying 5% of a million dollars for essentially someone to introduce two people? <laughs> well, I have a couple of questions, uh, Danny, I want to I want to broach in the time we have left that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, uh, anything else from the book you want to make sure we know that I didn't ask about? Uh, I think this was great. I think um, I really appreciate that, you know, you, you've clearly you've, you've reviewed the material, you, you know the book because, you know, we, we were able to have a great conversation. The only thing I'd say about the book is that you know I don't make my money selling books. So I want people to read the book. I want them to be exposed to these ideas um, a lot more than they actually care about selling books. And so that's why we we made the book available online for free completely and in perpetuity at leveragedlearningbook.com. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's that's fantastic. Well, uh, think about the books that you've read over the over the years, maybe maybe some that you read for research for this book. Uh, well, what would you say, Danny, or the two or three that come to mind as having had a huge impact on you and maybe share how or why they've impacted you as, as they have? Yeah, absolutely. So there are two books that come to mind, and they're both books that I did review in, in the research of leveraged learning. Um, one is Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman, the guy who wrote The World is Flat and Alexis and the Olive Tree. And it's a really, really fascinating review of all the forces that are changing the world and doing so just so rapidly into what he calls the age of acceleration. Um, it's a really good primer to just understanding the landscape of the world that we're moving into. And, and this is the landscape that education needs to prepare us for. So that's one really good book. Mm. The other is a book by Paul Tuff called How Children Succeed. I mean, it's not even about adult education. You know, it really applies, I think, much more broadly than with children. It, it's about understanding what leads to success in life. And the answers there are very surprising. Um, I often get asked if I want to start learning about some of the fortitude and mindset kind of stuff that, that is touched on in leveraged learning as well. Like, what's a good book to do a deep dive? And, and I tell people the first book I would start with is How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff. Mm, excellent. Well, as a successful uh, speaker, Danny, I'd love for you to share your advice for delivering a talk that's insightful, thoughtful. What are some things that you practice to make sure the audience walks away with the feeling that you want them to walk away with? Um, well, I mean, of course, the first thing is just you've got to have something worthwhile to say. <laughs> um, I think the idea of getting on stage in front of a lot of people, it's terrifying to some people. It's very attractive to others. And like people kind of bypass on both sides. But like, do you have something 
to say. I would spend less time on the presentation and more time on the substance. But assuming the substance is there, I mean, honestly, any tips I could give would be recycled from, you know, people like Michael Port, who's a good friend of mine who mm. I learned a lot from, or, or Nancy Duarte. So I would point people to resources like that. And Michael Port's heroic public speaking, and he's got a great book called Steal the Show. I would definitely go look at those resources. But in doing that, endeavor to learn from these experts not become like these experts mm. because everyone has their own unique style. So, you know, what, what I've appreciated, for example, working with Michael is that he helped me be the best version of myself on stage as opposed to he helped me sound like mm. him on stage. Mm. That's an important distinction. We've had both Michael and Nancy on the show in the past, so I highly recommend their work and echo those thoughts. Well, uh, now that the book is out, uh, what is ahead for you that you're excited about? Uh, well, definitely the book. You know, I, I have a friend who published a book recently, and uh, you know, when he submitted the manuscript right before the you know official pub date, his uh, publisher called him up and he's like, "You know, you just finished the sprint and you're about to start the marathon, right?" <laughs> <laughs> like, getting the word out is the hard part. So right. that's definitely still top of mind. The two other big things that we've got going on is uh, we have a conference for online entrepreneurs and experts who want to monetize their knowledge and grow their reach. It's uh, something we do roughly once a year. It's uh, three days of very intense training and we actually give away tickets for free only through you know people we trust so you know mm. being on this show i know the people listening to you are going to be great people because like attracts like so if anyone wants to come to a phenomenal in-person training um, you can go to lift l-i-f-t that's the name of the conference dot live um, and you're welcome to do that mm. And uh, the other place that we are investing a lot of our efforts is working with with businesses, with organizations on beefing up their internal training. So um, if you have employees, if you have a team, if you have knowledge that is important to disseminate within your organization, or you just want to leverage best practices of education to make your people better. For example, empowering them to think more strategically, to make better decisions. That's where we're investing a lot of energies, and I'd love for people to reach out to me to, to explore that. Excellent. Well, the, the name of the book, again, is Leverage Learning, How the Disruption of Education Helps Lifelong Learners and Experts with Something to Teach. His name is Danny Eni, I-N-Y. Uh, Danny, a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for sharing with us your expertise and experience. I really, really appreciate it. Jeff, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so, so much. I am including the links to Danny's homes on the web, his social media, the books he recommended, and other resources and links we talked about. You'll find that in the show notes page for today's episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 237 for episode 237. If you're a business owner looking to grow your business and generate new leads, whether that's, say, by launching a podcast or any other number of ways, you might want to be a part of the Zone of Genius Mastermind Group. If you'd like to find out more about the group and what we've been up to the past year, you can visit zoneofgenius.net. In fact, if you like what you see, click the link to the application there on the site and let us know of your interest. And I'll set up a call where you and I can get better acquainted and make sure we're a great fit. Again, that's Zone of Genius. Net. You can find out more about today's sponsor, that's FreshBooks, at freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Consider that 30-day free trial. And finally, if you have comments or feedback on the show, you can reach me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to lead.